broadcasting from Moscow, Idaho. This is Campus Roots Podcast. I'm your host, Daryl. This is episode 90, Francis Schaefer and pre-evangelism. Welcome to the Campus Reacher Podcast. Today, we will be discussing, as I just mentioned, Francis Schaeffer and pre-evangelism. Now, depending on what circles you are in, pre-evangelism might sound like a watered-down approach to interacting with your neighbor. No, we just do evangelism. There's no pre-going on, but I would encourage you to maybe even Google R.C. Sproul pre-evangelism. Uh, I'm following Francis Schaeffer and this idea of uh, pre-evangelism, and you can find other Reformed folks that are into, quote-unquote, pre-evangelism. And the basic idea of pre-evangelism is that you are interacting with the culture, and the more I interact with, say, younger people, um, they are less and less have any context for Christianity, and they are even becoming less and less into a contact when they're in contact with the real world. Um, so, you know, they think what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman is uh, socially constructed. And we can show up with a political agenda and, you know, kind of, you know, act like it's absurd. And there's an appropriate place for uh, arguing it's absurd. But when we're doing evangelism and we're doing apologetics, um, hopefully you are meeting with somebody who uh, is the image of God. And that's just one of those, the imago dei sort of thing. So we, uh, you know, kind of downplay what we actually believe, but we're not in doing evangelism and doing apologetics, we're not looking to be um, Ben Shapiro and be like Christian owns atheists. That's not our goal. Our goal is to evangelize and to share the gospel and in many ways, you know, kind of wash uh, our enemy's feet and be good and kind uh, to our, our enemies. And so uh, this podcast is basically going to be a 30 minute discussion um, that I'm going to condense. Well, it was an hour long discussion that I condensed in this podcast down to 30 minutes. So you can get, kind of get a little bit of an idea. This was at the end of the day, a girl came up to me and was started asking me some questions. And so we started, um, and what I was doing, I would share the gospel throughout uh, our discussion. But what I was really trying to do is just get her in, back in contact with the real world, which she seemed to be out of touch with. And I do think once you start to get oriented back into the real world, um, because the real world points to God, uh, it's going to get you back to the gospel. It's going to get you back to Jesus. And so I was willing to, you know, regularly, I think several times in the conversation, I share the gospel. Um, but much of what I'm doing is just trying to get her at a place of understanding that the world's rational and that there's truth. And so I wanted, uh, I, I think it, hopefully it's helpful uh, to you. Um, I, it's one of those things when I listened to it after having the conversation with her, I was like, oh man, there's so many things in here that I say just aren't that great and I can be said better and I kind of hemmed and hawed or whatever it was. Um, but it gives you an idea, you know, that it's easy to replay the game film, be like, oh, I should have done this, 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 and this. I did make an error. I said that it was Bertrand Russell uh, that made the statement of uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidences, but that's actually Carl Sagan. So in the dialogue, I did say, Bertrand Russell, it's Carl Sagan, as far as I know. But one of the things I want to brush on is Francis Schaeffer, uh, in his evangelism, he talks about taking the roof off of people's houses. And so what he says is this, is that every man has built a roof over his head to shield himself at the point of tension. So everybody, the unbeliever, because they're not living in God's world, has tension in their beliefs. So let's just say, oh, we're relativists, and they turn around. It's absolutely evil that anybody would abuse a woman type of thing. Well, um, if you're a relativist, how does that point of tension between the radical relativism that you articulated, how does that relate to the idea of you know Black Lives Matter or abuse towards a woman or whatever, um, homophobia, whatever the issue may be? So if you're a relativist, how do we tease this out consistently? And so what, what Schaefer says that we've built this 
roof overhead. And what we want to do in our evangelism is find that point of contact and take the roof off and then kind of let the, the, the problems rain down on them. And ultimately, uh, Schaefer being a very good evangelist, he ties it into, you know, ultimately we're trying to get at the place where they, um, the wrath of God rains down on them. And one of the things that he talks about, it's amazing. And it's even our, our culture is even more hyper. At this place, and I just wanted to read this just because I, th- I thought it was helpful, but he says, removing the roof is not some kind of optional exercise. It is strictly biblical in its emphasis. In the thinking of the 20th century man, the concept of judgment and of hell is nonsense. Now, I, I don't know what year this was published, but we'll just say 1970, uh, give or take. So that was 50 years ago. And how much more is a concept of judgment of hell nonsense? I see this every single day when I'm on campus. And he goes on to say, and therefore, to begin to talk here is to mumble in a language which makes no contact with him. Hell, or any such concept, is unthinkable to modern man because he has been brainwashed into accepting the monolithic belief of of naturalism, which surrounds him. We of the West may not be brainwashed by our state, but we are brainwashed by our culture. Even the modern radicals are radicals in a very limited circle. And so I realize in, you know, wherever you're coming from, you might agree or disagree. And oftentimes we think we just got to go in there with a hammer and, you know, God's word is like a hammer that shatters a rock. But I do think there's a context between going to Jews and going to Gentiles. And as our culture is more and more Gentile, um, which has no relation to Torah and no relation to the gospel, um, I do think trying to discover a point of contact and then in that uh, point of contact, taking the roof off the individual is very helpful. So the the idea of pre-evangelism is just like looking to discover a point of contact, discovering a point of tension in unbelievers thought and trying to expose that by taking the roof off, as Schaefer would say. And then from there, evangelism or apologetics as um, John Frame defines it is the application of scripture to unbelief. So from there, we're trying to um, take the roof off and fill that with biblical content. And so that's this conversation that I have uh, with this girl. Um, I would love some of your feedback. I'm uh, on it if you have any questions, comments, demands, why I said what I said or uh, didn't say enough maybe. But again, uh, I have trimmed down an hour, hour and 15 minute conversation down to 30 minutes. So it's a little bit more manageable and uh, all that sort of stuff. So hopefully you enjoy it. Thanks. I'm a, I'm agnostic. I grew up in a family of, you know, lapsed Catholics. Okay. Uh, and I was raised kind of atheist agnostic. Um, and so I guess... So this is the question I ask all of the people who come by here, and it's, why your God? You know, I'm not going to deny the existence of God. I don't think such a thing is deniable or, you know, provable either. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's any point to that. Um, but why, you know, why the Bible? Why not the Hindu kind of God slash gods? Why not Yeah. Yeah, good question. So I would say that the Christian God is the Jewish God. Um, yes. <laughs> okay, so, so, so you have Judaism, uh, then I fi- say it find its fulfillment in Christianity. So I believe Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So the Old Testament promised that a Jewish Messiah would come. Uh, we who are Christians are convinced that the Jew- Jewish Messiah has come, and we believe him. And with regards to Judaism and Christianity, I would, I would say uh, the kind of the main event uh, in my book is, did Jesus of Nazareth rise from the dead on the third day? Because um, a lot of people have been killed, uh, you know. You could, you know, Joseph Smith was martyred. Uh, he was Mormonism. Uh, Muhammad was. Uh, I don't believe he was murdered. Um, but then, died. And uh, but you have a, a myriad of would-be religious leaders or political revolutionaries who end up dying. And so it's not in of itself unique that Jesus was crucified. He was crucified uh, by the Roman Empire. And so it's not totally unique. But what separates Jesus from everybody else is his resurrection. 
and, and so I believe it, so why do I believe Christianity? Because I believe in that resurrection event. I believe that Jesus was crucified, dead, buried, and was really resurrected. And because of that resurrection, God has made them both Lord and Christ. And so... So, I guess, I guess two questions mm-hmm. then. Um, so the first one is, you know, there are a lot of elements that include... Uh, sorry, a lot of religions that include elements of uh, resurrection. I mean, I mentioned, you know, Hinduism earlier. They mm-hmm. believe that you... You know, you get resurrected over and over again until you do it right. Mm-hmm. Well, they're more reincarnation, so they believe there's a part of you. Yeah, and so, so I believe in the resurrection. So I, my name's Keith. So Keith will exit the tomb. It's not that some part of me leaves my body and enters another part. So okay, that's all right. Kind of mix up my words a little. That's okay. Right. So they believe that that you know people come back reincarnated. So I guess I guess the question there would be, you know, it's not necessarily. For me, it doesn't seem necessarily like inconsistent, right? To believe that that is what happens, and therefore that's why you know a lot of Hindu religious leaders would not really have come back, right? Uh, even though a lot of you know people who believe in Hinduism say they, you know, remember their past lives and have experienced past lives, and sometimes know an uncomfortable level of detail about people they shouldn't really have been exposed to. Um, and then I guess the second question is. My general attitude towards religion is that of, I don't remember who said it, but it's the extraordinary claims require extraordinary Yeah, Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Bertrand Russell said it. Uh Okay. Um, Right, and so I guess the claim that somebody came back from the dead requires an extraordinary level of evidence. Mm -hmm. And personally, I've never felt as if the Bible, right, which was written by a lot of different people, um, with a lot of different, you know, personal views and agendas is sufficient. Why do you believe that it is? Um, I believe it's I believe it's sufficient on a couple fronts. Um, so first of all, I do uh, uh, one. I do believe that the Old Testament prophesied a resurrection. Uh, so I don't think that Christ's resurrection happened in a vacuum. Um, but I think a, a Jew properly reading the Old Testament would have understood that the Messiah must suffer and be resurrected. So I believe that it was predicted. So for example, if I said um, you know, if you were to kill me, I'm going to come back on the third day, and then you kill me, and then people who have been there, and then they start to uh, bear witness. Let me turn off my phone, sorry. Um, uh, and so then people begin to witness to it. So I don't believe that the Christian event is a private event that happened to an individual, but the, the at least the Christian story is that it, he appeared to more than 500 people. And some of the first witnesses were women. And in the first century, women's testimony would not be, have been accepted as valid in a, in a court. So if you're going to start a religion 2,000 years ago in Israel and say, you know, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, you don't roll out women as your first witnesses. Similarly, the Old Testament says, cursed is anyone who's hung upon a tree. So it, Jesus, by being hung up on a cross, um, being hung up on a tree, would have been considered cursed from God. And so even if there was a Muslim out here today, they would argue that Jesus was not crucified because God would have never allowed that to happen to a prophet. And, and so, so if you're, again, if you're in a first century Jew, and I can respect the Muslim's position on that, it's not to be disrespectful to them, I, I appreciate that they're like aghast that God would allow one of his men to suffer in such a way, um, but, it's, but it's this kind of this cumulative thing of the death of Jesus, women witnesses, and then a bunch of men running around saying, we've seen him rise from the dead, and people saying, recant your story, we're going to kill you, and it's like, we can't, we've seen him rise from the dead. So if you and I were lying about something, and we knew we were lying about it, and, like, so for example, if you're walking off this campus and a cop comes up to you and says, was there a guy out there preaching today? And you said yes, and they go to arrest you, you'd be like, I didn't see anybody, because you have no stake in me. You know what I mean? You'll, you'll, you'll gladly be like, if, if, if there's going to be a cost to you, you'll gladly roll it out. Um, well, I, that's a very weird scenario to 
think about, but I, I guess, yeah. Yeah, so, so why would uh, 500 people, well, they weren't all killed, but why would a, a large group of people be willing to die for something that they collectively knew was a lie? You know, I guess my issue, so I, I kind of have two problems with that. I don't know why I keep bringing up two. You're fine. <laughs> Uh, I guess my brain runs on two tracks right now. So, so my first issue is uh, that we have very few actual first-hand accounts from that time, which does make sense because not everyone would know how to read and write. Um, and so a lot of people who might be considered witnesses might not, you know, have, have been able to write it down. But most of the kind of first-hand accounts we have of, of Jesus' death and resurrection come from years later from people who weren't even alive during this time, right? Uh, well, I would say no. I would say there were... Th- I would say... Uh, if you read the gospel accounts, I would say that they claim to either be eyewitnesses or talking to eyewitnesses. Right, but as far as we can specifically date, you know, um, that, that's kind of the issue as well. Uh, the gospels seem to have been written by, you know, well, okay, well, not the gospels, but parts of the Bible seem to have been written by a lot of different people mm-hmm. for a lot of kind of different time periods. Yeah. So, um, it's kind of hard to trace like when certain parts were written and when certain parts kind of became part of the Bible or, you know, were considered canon. Um, so that's kind of my issue is the lack of firsthand accounts that we can prove are firsthand. And the second thing is, you know, you're right, 500 people agreeing on, on something that they don't have personal stake in is something extraordinary. But I mean, not only do we see that for other religions, right, for miracles that occur in other religions, um, there are also, you know, a lot of cases of people, like large numbers of people claiming that they've seen things like UFOs that Mm -hmm. we've seen. There was that um, laughing sickness, I believe, in Zimbabwe where hundreds of, of girls and women, you know, for some kind of reason related to collective trauma, all began to laugh and just couldn't stop. You know, there is a... We know that there are forms of collective... And then were they being threatened with death if they didn't recant the story? I mean, this is not a situation in which they were asked uh, about death, but there are, you know, if you think about a lot of, of, um, you know, not just... I'm thinking Catholic saints You're you're fine. Right? Yeah. Um, A lot of Catholic saints, right, where their miracles, right, uh, have been repeated by people in front of eyewitnesses but we don't generally consider those valid because there are a lot of ways to trick people, basically, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it is also possible to mislead a large number of people, and it is possible to sincerely convince a large number of people of things that are untrue or to have, you know, some kind of collective delusion. I'm not saying that's mm-hmm. what the account of Jesus' death and rebirth is, but I feel like, you know, again, if you're making the extraordinary claim that Christianity is correct and it's the way to go and everything, I feel like you can't discount the fact that this may have occurred, right? Yeah, I, and I would, I would. Uh, so yeah, when I look at the different scenarios of what's the best explanation, um, even like people who spend their life, like uh, Bart Ehrman, uh, E.P. Sanders, um, I'm blank on this other guy's name, pe- people who are not Christians, uh, they are willing to confess that some event, something happened to the disciples shortly after his death and burial. Um, and some claim to have experienced them. And so, yeah, so the question is, and, and so when you look at the cumulative thing, so for me, I just think it's a self, like you said, you're agnostics or an atheist. To me, it's just self-evidently true that there's a creator. Yeah. Uh, so so I, I like this idea that somehow by pure spontaneity for absolutely no reason at all we're here, I just think is, is truly irrational because if, reason uh, is purpose 
and, and rationality deals with purposefulness. And if we're not here for any reason at all, we're generally, at bottom, the universe is irrational. And, and so I think your, your option is either a rational universe or an irrational universe. Yeah, well, I will say, uh, I believe statistics show that Christians tend to, you know, have, feel that the world is rational more often, and that can be very reassuring. Um, I mean, personally, again, I always grew up with the idea that the world is, in fact, irrational. Um, things happen, and th there are laws, there are rules, we have the laws of physics, we know... You know, we have all the things that science kind of tells us are our natural laws. Um, but but if we're in an irrational universe, in your irrational universe, what is actually extraordinary? So, so, so if the universe is at bottom irrational, and earlier you appealed to this standard of uh, ordinary and extraordinary, but if the world is irrational, there is no ordinary. You're right. Uh, and so this idea well, that... there's statistically normal, but that's but, a different thing. But, but statistics are meaningless in an irrational world. So if you're rolling an infinitely sided dice, if you're rolling an infinitely sided dice, you have no statistics on what's going to come up. The only way that you can have a rational statistic is if you have some knowledge of what what the I world see consists where this of. Is going. I see, okay, I, I have I have heard this argument before, and I think I see. So essentially, what you're saying is you cannot build rationality on an irrational foundation. Something similar to that. Um, you know, I don't really know how to. Uh, I, I, you know, so I have heard this before, and generally it gets used in the, in terms of consciousness, when I've seen it online and, and uh, kind of read it in, in books and things. Um, and so I guess, I guess I don't believe that is true. We do sometimes see organized systems arising from disorganized systems, and the issue here is that we don't know what there was before the universe, right? We have a lot of potential theories, right? We believe, like, one of them is that there is a cycle of universes that, you know, rapidly expand, slow down their expansion, because we currently know that the expansion of the universe is slowing, uh, and then collapse back and then reform. There's no reason why that would happen, but it also does not fundamentally, you know, follow that there can be no rational, um, but I guess, I, I guess, my, I guess my, my position would be this, that I think it's far more reasonable to believe that irrationality is in a world that is fundamentally reasonable than reason is in a world that's fundamentally irrational. So as a Christian, what I believe is backing the universe is, so there's a couple things. So backing the universe, I believe, is reason. I believe that irrationally comes about because of human sin and rebellion. So, so backing the universe is that. But then secondly, I would also say morally backing the universe is a good God. Whereas if morally, again, oh, in the morality. context of morality, so you, have, so you have rationality, you have morality as well, and then you also just have the nature of reality. So you kind of have three things that I think are important for human understanding, basically is, metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. This is a textbook. Do you belong to an apologetics organization? I do not. You do not? Okay, uh -uh. because this is exactly what a lot of apologetics organizations will, you know, put on their websites. Sorry. No, it's fine. But within that, well, the, the, the question is, you know, is it true? So even if everybody universally used the argument, um, that it doesn't yeah. negate it. So even if every, let's just say every apologetic group in the country used the same argument, the question is, is it true? So if I could show that all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, Socrates is moral, that may be in every logic textbook out there that doesn't negate the logic of the argument. Yes. So 
I, I'm familiar with this. I guess the problem here is that there's a fundamental premise, you know, that, again, what you are claiming is no kind of rational system can exist on an irrational foundation. We don't know that. We do not know whether or not that premise is true. That premise is fundamentally unprovable. You know, that that is my, my issue with with that thing, you simply can't. But even when, you, but that's a hard part. Even when you use worm like proof, what sort of proof are you talking about? Well, in in this case, um, I believe that it is improvable because logically, okay. Well, first off, because there are most, you cannot disprove most things. You cannot actually say this is completely a hundred percent false. Science does not accept that you can ever completely invalidate an opinion. But the other thing is, you know, you could not, like, you could come up with several systems, right, in which, uh, you know, a, an organized system only dissolves into less organization. That's the entire principle of entropy, which is one I've also used her to explain why God must be real. Um, but fundamentally, we cannot perform a large-scale test, right, to see whether or not from a disorganized system, an entirely closed disorganized system, organization can rise. We are incapable of doing that. We do not have, you know, universes to experiment on. Yeah, well, but, but again, I, I still think you're at a bedrock problem of, of assuming some aspect of anything you do being meaningful. And the only way anything you're doing is meaningful is if you're, if you're doing that which is rational. I don't think anything is fundamentally meaningful. Okay. So if that's the case, then obviously any argument I put forward is fundamentally meaningless. That's... Okay. I guess the issue is the, the problem with meaning can be personal or, you know, on a large scale, it can be, I guess, universal, right? Mm -hmm. I personally experience meaning. To you, the arguments that you're putting forth do mean something, and I am trying to respond to them in a certain way that means something to me. Mm -hmm. However... Um, on a universal scale, yeah, it doesn't matter. You know, what you say to me or what I say to you, uh, the universe does not care. The universe will not respond. The universe does not, as a whole, does not register any meaning in this. And so um, that can be a weird thing to think about. But, you know, I guess the, the issue is I am rooted in my own experience. And in my own experience, yes, things mean things. And I acknowledge that they mean things just because I feel like it. Like, there is no fundamental reason why they should mean to me. And there are a lot of people for whom meaning is entirely subjective. I try, I mean, I try to do my best, mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah, there's no universal guiding principle. Okay. So, but so from that standpoint, realize, like, when you show up to ask questions along these lines, what you're really asking me is, why do I play a different game than you do? Okay, and if at root anything I, ca anything I say can be dumped into a category of, yeah, well, the universe is at bottom meaningless and I just apply my own meaning to it, the only real question out here then today in my interaction with you is, you know, does, does something I say in turn create in you some sort of personal meaning that causes you to change your mind or change your views? But you're not coming back to something called the truth or, or anything along those lines because uh, if the world's not meaningful, then there is no ultimate truth that's guiding uh, right. the things. Yeah, and so so given that, um, you know, when you use things like, you know, why do you think Christianity is true, or uh, you know, what proof do you have? Realize you're you're asking all these questions from a vacuum, and, and so I think the only way they're meaningful is if we show up onto a field, if we go to play a game, and and you're like, and you're like, hey, uh, in order to win, you have to score a touchdown. I ask you, how do you score a touchdown? You're like, well, you can't. There is no touchdown. 
or if or from there the touchdown is well you just have to cross this line but at the end of the day it's just a game we're playing we're not saying anything true about the universe um, that's where the gap is so from a christian so why am i no, going right. back to going back to your fundamental point of why am i a christian i'm a christian because I, I like i would just say kind of like you know, steal a line from somebody else. Why do I believe in the sun? In its light, I see everything more clearly. So I believe that rationality becomes clear in light of the Logos backing the, uh, the universe, that a good God backs morality. We all know that rape is wrong. You don't need a preacher to tell you rape is wrong. It's not because it's some subjective state that you have that you think rape's wrong. Rape's wrong because it's universally wrong in all places at all times. Uh, so and then from there, just the nature of reality, that the idea that you and I are separate from one another. You know, why am I not a Hindu? Because I don't believe you're a me and I'm you. I don't believe all is one. I believe there's a distinction between you and me. That's why things like rape are wrong, because there's a distinction between person A and person B. Yeah, part of the water and part of the one. So, so that, and, but I, I think we know there's distinction. I, I would just say, and the very nature of logic means A and non-A. Good and evil means A and non-A. I don't think it's just Western thinking, because either... Your, because uh, the very nature that you can say there's Western or Eastern thinking that brings us back to logic, or you can think like a Hindu or not like a Hindu. Uh, and so, so I, I think you know, even going back to like what I was saying earlier, I just think at root, I do believe we're in a rational world, and I think when we believe right. things that are irrational, and obviously if you can believe, and, the- and I apologize, you're right. It is kind of an impossible standard, right, mm-hmm. to prove the existence of God or to explain why you're Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's necessarily well. It's, guess- it's impossible, I think, in your game. Because your game at bottom is is meaningless yeah, and is an yeah. infinite I bottom. Set, so I have set an impossible standard, um, and I guess that that is part of the like overall issue. Yeah. Um, that you know, I, I've heard a lot of, of, of things that say like, why do you even bother? Right? If you define the universe is fundamentally irrational and meaningless, like, why? And the only answer I can give to that is because regardless of whether or not it is, I experience it as meaningful and mm-hmm. rational. And that is the only reason I'm <laughs> talking <laughs> yeah. to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and where that experience comes from is very, you know, it's very complicated. And um, as far as, like, the existence of a soul goes, I don't think you can really prove or disprove that either. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do apologize because I realize now that that's not really something you can address. Yeah, uh, on your terms, I don't think. Uh, well, yeah, yes, yeah. And but I do think the minute you can see that no, the world is rational, I think you're suddenly into a different. You're in a different because rationality, even logic, like we don't expect these bricks to be logical or rational. Even if you think that you're you're the one applying uh, logic or rationality, the uh, logic and rationality are the things of persons. And so we don't think like yeah, the the flag to be rational, we might expect it to blow a certain ways with the wind. Um, but but it's your mind. And so similarly, what I would say is this: back in the universe is is a mind, is a universal mind. Because even logic, I would say, is universal. A can't be non A in the same way at the same time. Whether you're in China, uh, America, you're on the moon, right. all that okay, sort of so stuff. Let me say I accept this premise that the you know the universe is fundamentally logical and rational. And I'm trying to put myself in this mind frame. So, so I guess this universal intelligence you're talking about, would that be God? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why would such universal intelligence want anything? Especially, you know, from humans. Why would it want certain behaviors? Why would it, why would it care, essentially? Because um, if, uh, you know, even... You know, even in a similar way, because if we're made in his image, even as humans, we expect behavior from other people certain ways. So even in your um, world, you want people to behave certain ways towards you. If I just walked up and punched you, you probably wouldn't be too happy with my behavior yeah. towards you. <laughs> and even somebody who doesn't know you, if that guy walking by sees me walk up and punch you, he probably is not happy with it. He has no relationship to you. He might come running over and tackle me, whatever it is, maybe start beating me up. So if 
put yourself in my shoes again, um, that if there's a personal God that made the universe and he made you and me as his image bearers, uh, he created us to love him and love our neighbors. Uh, he created us to do those things. So exactly why I don't like, you know, there are Christian answers like, oh, for his glory, because he loves us. And, you know, then you can still push back like, why, 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 why? And, and so, so ultimately, I believe that, that God did it because he is loving. And so kind of like you said, you're asexual, but you know, oftentimes when people love one another, they want to create a family. They want people to participate in their love and stuff like that. And so they have children, they have the children participate in. So I believe God's always been loving because uh, you mentioned the Trinity. I believe that God's tr uh, Trinitarian. So the Father's always loved the Son and the Spirit. And so there's always been love in God. And part of the reason he created the universe is to reflect his character, reflect his glory, and it's what he wanted to do. And so exactly why, I don't know. Um, but I think it's completely reasonable that if there is a God, that he would expect us to behave certain ways. And so if you're his image bearer and I was to attack you, I think it's reasonable for a good father to stop stop me or to judge me. Right. So the, I guess you're, you've mentioned several things here. For, so for example, you said, you know, created in his image, uh, which is something, again, that I'm not convinced by, like, you know. I'm just asking you to put yourself in my shoes a little bit. So, no, that's so, what I'm yeah. trying to do, okay. you know, by, by assuming that the universe is, in fact, rational and meaningful. It's, uh, it's taking me a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, so I, guess, I guess the issue here is, you know, you're talking about a God who is loving, about a God who wants things, who has meaning. Um, and I guess my issue is that even if the world is rational and meaningful, I don't see why it necessitates, you know, a God who is loving a God who wants things for us, who created us in any specific way, uh, instead of a universe that, you know, like a universal intelligence in which this just happens because of the rules that exist in that universe, and that the universe does not, you know, is intelligent, but why would a universal intelligence, like we cannot harm universal intelligence, right? Yeah. And so you're saying that I want other people to behave in certain ways, but on a fundamental level, we cannot harm the universe. We cannot really change the universe. I don't really understand how it follows, right, that because we want things from other people, that the universe would want things from us. Yeah, and I would make a distinction between the universe and the creator and the creation. So I would make the creator God. distinct from the universe. Yeah, so you have the creator. Um, but I think it's, I think it's yeah, I would just say it's, it's perfectly reasonable from two fronts. I think one reason requires purpose, purposefulness. And if there's an intelligence that made the world, and he is in fact rational, then there's purposefulness behind what he's created. Uh, similarly, I, this kind of ties in with, I'd want to maintain that God is good, and because he's good, he expects certain things from his creation uh, that is tied into his goodness. Um, and so given that rationality is purposeful, uh, given that rationality is per personal, um, I don't think it's impersonal, and that's even why I think these uh, issues get difficult, because it, it is fundamentally personal. Um, so I, I think it's completely reasonable that if there is a God that made the universe, that he would care about his creation. Similarly, if you, let's just say you make a project on your own, and even if it's inanimate, you can greatly care about your artwork or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, again, I guess, I guess the issue here is kind of, we're talking about, about God as an entity being something far beyond anything we as humans could understand or experience. And you're kind of... But I want to hedge you there. I would, I'd want to hedge yeah. there, because I believe that the God who made your eyes can see. The God who made your mouth can speak, and the God who made your ears can hear. So I believe, going back to my position, is fundamentally that God made us in, and put us in a universe to understand him. So even when we look at the sun, we can understand something about him. When he, he's given us rocks, so we can understand something about him. He's made us male and female, so we can understand something about him. So I believe that everything everything in the universe that God has made is is fundamentally almost like 
like an analogy of him. So if you're studying the world properly, so as a Christian, I just don't look at a tree, um, but Psalm 1 says, uh, blessed is a man who's planted by streams of living water, that he's like a tree that bears its fruit in its season. And I look at trees and I also think of humans. And I realize that might be kind of crazy to you, but to me the world's poetic and the world is meaningful from rocks to trees to rivers and all that sort of stuff. Um, I do write, I I write, uh, and I do origami. I, I understand, I guess, art or seeing the world as being poetic or being reflective of, I guess, the nature of humanity, whatever the condition is. Um, and I don't know, I still, I still feel like there's a fundamental disconnect here, because what I am imagining is when you talk about a universe that is rational, that is, um, I guess, organized in some sense, is still a being so alien that it would be completely impossible to know like what they want or what purpose they have or whether or not they are good or bad or whether or not they expect anything whether or not they want anything that all seems to me like like a leap and I do understand I, I am following your logic right I understand that you believe that I guess the nature of what you observe in, in humans and the nature of what you observe in the world reflects some kind of of design and I don't I don't see that. I simply do not. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I apologize for that. But I still don't see how, like, a being like that would necessarily... If, if something like this arose, there can be a lot of... If we're ascribing certain emotions, just simple curiosity with moral neutrality, right? Uh, and especially when it comes to, like, the things like heaven, hell, right? Morality, I still don't... Like, we might have have morals, right? And yet I find that they're often not all that intrinsic, and I find that very often I think Christianity fails to address, like, what morality truly is and why we should be moral, especially when it comes to heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. Um, Right, and, and so I, I feel like this is another fundamental disconnect that you're not going to be able to bridge. Okay. Uh, but do you understand where I'm coming from? In part, um, in part, but uh, yeah, like you know, and obviously I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of immersed in, in certain thinking. So to me, the yeah, it's the most reasonable thing to think. Yeah, there's a moral universe. Uh, there's moral right and wrong. And I don't think I'm primarily motivated by heaven or hell. I'm motivated by love towards God and love towards my neighbor. I just think the consequence is kind of like you know, if someone was going to commit a crime, you're like, you realize what the punishment is. Um, you know, it's not like the average person. It's not like you go about your day thinking about jail too too often. Maybe maybe you, you think about one random event here or there. You're like, oh, I'm so mad. I could, and you're like, well, I don't want to get in trouble for it. So you kind of hedge. Uh, but most of your morality is just kind of made in the context of uh, other persons and caring. So most of my most of my moral making decisions very rarely ever in the context of heaven or hell. It's it's usually well, I love God, I love my neighbor, and to be honest with you, I very rarely think about hell. Um, when I was younger, maybe I thought about it a bit more, but at this point, I very rarely uh, think about it. So, um, but I, yeah, I just think the most reasonable well, thing is again raised with Catholic parents. Uh-huh. Uh, Catholics are pretty big on. Hell as a concept. Yeah, I even just think maybe some guilt and things like that. And so, uh, whereas the, the Christian message is fundamentally one of grace, uh, that, that God, like, so even going back to how do I know God, I believe he became a man in every way, like you and me, yet he was without sin. Jesus of Nazareth is God in the flesh, and he dwelt amongst us for 33 years, and he loved his neighbors, and he loved his enemies, and the response of the world was put that man to death. Uh, but he was crucified, he was buried, he was raised up on the third day. 
and says, announce this gospel to all the world. And so how do I know God? Jesus says, if you want to know the Father, look at me. So I would encourage you, um, you've at least read the Old Testament and some of the New Testament, uh, I would encourage you to go home, read the gospels. And, and I realize this might sound crazy to you, but just say, Jesus, if you're, that guy said you rose from the dead. If you really rose from the dead, would you show yourself to me? And I don't think you're going to get some heightened experience, uh, but what I think is going to, what the Lord may do with you is be pleased to open your eyes and be like, because there's a, there's a woman in Acts chapter 16 named Lydia. And it says that God opened Lydia's heart to Paul's message. And so my hope with that, that uh, if you ask God, show yourself to me. Because cause it's like this. I wouldn't be able to know you. You described yourself as asexual to me earlier. I would never know that about you without you telling me that about you. So yeah. just as... So, so just as Knowing you, and what's your name, by the way? My name's Anna. Anna. So, so just as in order to know Anna, you have to speak to me, and you have to reveal yourself to me. Right. Similarly, God has to speak to you and reveal Himself to you because He's a personal being. And, and so, there are certain things you can know about God. We look at this building, we might be able to say, "Oh, yeah, there's an architect," but we don't really know who the architect is. I don't even know who built the building. I assume a bunch of people built the building. But in order to really know them, uh, they would have to reveal themselves to me. So, I think there are certain things you can know about God by looking at the creation and everything else. But ultimately, He needs to speak to you. And I believe the primary way he speaks to you is through his word um and so that that would be the that would be the main thing so i'm i'm with you on many of your objections and like you know because at the end of the day there's a subjective element that you need where god reveals himself to you so that's this episode of the campus preacher podcast if you have any questions comments demands rebukes exhortations feel free to reach out to me keith daryl at gmail campus evangel on the twitter campus preacher on instagram keith daryl on facebook lord bless you keep you talk to you next week